the philosophes, including John Locke, are going to say, okay, here is how human society works. In a state of nature, every human being is the possessor of their own political sovereignty. In other words, there is no person or force that imbues someone with political power. You have it innately. But in order to have a peaceful society, because as one thinker said, men are not angels, you need to have a government. Hello, everyone. Welcome to You Are Your Uterus, A History. This episode is entitled, The Women's Movement Takes Off, the 1850s. Now, what I originally intended on talking about was this explosion of activity in the 1850s. And I have to admit that when I did my course, I often ran over this because everything changes after the Civil War and the adoption of what we call the Civil War Amendments or the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And that will be the topic of my next episode. However, it is imperative to understand how galvanized women were after the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, which I talked about last time. But in the interim between my last episode and this one, my understanding of our politics and our ideology has shifted radically. It all started with the horrible shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, and only recently in Hyde Park in Illinois, because I fail to understand how it's possible that the easiest, most direct solution is to ban assault weapons, which were banned in my lifetime, and then that ban expired. And I I'm, I was just stunned. And Uvalde especially really rattled me because my kids were young and the same, when Sandy Hook happened. And I couldn't believe that someone went after young children like that. And then when nothing happened after that, I was stunned. And once again, we have this situation where it is all too easy for anyone, mostly young white men, to walk into a store and buy a gun. It's harder for most people to, to get any other kinds of licenses. But in any event, I also had been aware of the draft leak decision about in Dobbs, which deals with abortion, and not just abortion, but citizenship and our rights. And I have been drowning in that decision for weeks and weeks. And I am going to talk about it today with regard to these movements in the 1850s. And in fact, from this point on, almost every episode I'm going to be recording is directly connected to now. And why is that? Well, if you go back to my earliest episodes, and let me just remind everyone that my focus when I look at the history of women in America is to recognize that from the beginning of the country, from the beginning when the colonies were breaking away from England, women made it clear that, look, the whole way people understand governance has changed. And if you guys are going to incorporate this new political ideology into the creation of a country, you can't just do what everyone has done before. You need to be better. You need to remember that the women are involved too. 
What is this new kind of government? Well, it, it actually is very relevant to today with regard to your body. If you are a woman or any person with a uterus, regardless of how you identify, your uterus means that you cannot have full citizenship. Let's go back to the governing ideology. Remember way back when I said our country was founded in the midst of an intellectual movement called the Enlightenment. And although people think of the Enlightenment and they think of France, because of course, Voltaire and Rousseau and Montesquieu and Diderot, all these famous French philosophers, but in addition was John Locke, who the colonists revered. John Locke wrote the two treatises of government. And essentially, here's how it works. Unlike what people believed at the time, that political power flowed from God to a king, the new thinking, and this is again moving away from a religious basis for society and not relying on religion to explain things, the same way that religion was not explaining the heavens, the scientific revolution and Galileo and later Newton are explaining how nature works. Well, now the philosophers, including John Locke, are going to say, okay, here is how human society works. In a state of nature, every human being is the possessor of their own political sovereignty. In other words, there is no person or force that imbues someone with political power. You have it innately. But in order to have a peaceful society, because as one thinker said, men are not angels, you need to have a government. Okay, so you, the possessor of your political sovereignty, hand over your political sovereignty in a, on a conditional basis. What is the condition? That the government has to rule in your interests. That the whole reason the government exists is to reflect the needs and wants and necessities of the people. Okay? If that contract is broken, if the rulers begin ruling in their own interests and forgetting about the interests of the people, then that government is no longer valid and it. You are allowed to overthrow it. Moreover, as was codified in the Declaration of Independence and by Rousseau and by John Locke and all these great thinkers, you have certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, Locke said property, Thomas Jefferson said the pursuit of happiness. When our Constitution was drafted, the first three words, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. In other words, we are the people. We have the sovereignty. We are the ones who possess the right to rule over ourselves. And we have these inalienable rights. Well, you know what? Forget about what the Constitution says. Forget about the Declaration of Independence when it comes to women. Because from the get-go, a male patriarchy, a white, rich male patriarchy, decided that women could never be equal citizens. And the irony is, is that not only did Abigail Adams write to her husband and say, you better remember us, not only did you have several decades in which women were advocating for changes in society. And in the French Revolution, a woman wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Women. Why? The understanding was, is if this is the way people think about politics now, well, 
Of course we're included. We're humans. We're part of the people. We also have inalienable rights. However, one thing gets in the way, and that is your uterus, because your uterus defines your intellectual capabilities, your physical capabilities, your ability to function in public, your ability to think, to go to school. And although some of that has changed, obviously women can go to school despite the fact that they might having their period or be pregnant. But what hasn't changed is that the uterus comes first and your rights as a citizen come second. And nowhere is that truer in that decision that just came down from the Supreme Court. All right. So from the beginning, remember that women are advocating for equality of citizenship. They're not saying we're the same as men. We're not saying that we're better. We're saying, hey, this is a whole new political philosophy. And by the way, I have spent decades reading political philosophy. It was one of the things I focused on in graduate school. And in fact, is the basis of my dissertation. My dissertation was called Sex Subjugation and the Succession, Gender and Politics in Early Elizabethan England. And essentially what I did is show how having a woman in power altered the political ideology of the time because they had to account for the fact that a woman was ruling over them and that is not allowed. That is, You can't have that. So what do we do? Well, we're going to kind of reorient how we think about the rights of the rep- representatives, in other words, in England Parliament. And they started amassing and arguing that they had all these powers as a way to mitigate, of course, the horror of having a woman in a position of power. So I have read a lot of political philosophy from the ancients, the Middle Ages, religious political philosophy, and of course, certainly the Enlightenment and the liberal ideology of the 19th century that followed. And so when I see what these women are arguing, they are arguing the exact same thing as men argued at the time they broke away from England and at the time of the French Revolution. Hold on. You have to rule in our interests and you cannot abrogate these rights that we inherently have that are inalienable, that cannot be given away. But again, your uterus. So we talked about in past episodes how from the beginning, women's advocacy in the United States was about citizenship. Right after the United States is formed in 1789, some women begin arguing for equality of education, that in order to be a good citizen, you had to be educated. When we look at the 1790s and the early turn of the century, that's what we're seeing. But then things really, really shift with my fabulous Grimke sisters and the formation of a female anti-slavery society, because women wanted to be involved in the abolition movement. For many women, this was the greatest evil that existed in their midst. And after all, they're citizens, they should be involved. And remember, the poor Grimke sisters had to deal with the fact that, oh, no, women aren't supposed to speak in public. And, oh, my God, horrors, you'll stop being a woman and you'll be barren. And, oh, my God, all these terrible things. Well, you know what? None of it worked. And when you look at 1837 and 1838, those Grimke sisters are lecturing everywhere, writing off it all the time. And again, saying, we have an equal status not just 
in terms of religion that we have a duty to correct the ills of society, but as citizens. And then, of course, Seneca Falls comes about in 1848 after women had been silenced at the World Anti-Slavery Conference in 1840. Remember, I told the story of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott walking around London because, God forbid, the women actually have something to say at the World Anti-Slavery Meeting. No, they wanted to put them behind a curtain and let them listen. So 17, 1848 Seneca Falls Convention that I talked extensively about in the last episode takes off. And that is the beginning. It is not an endpoint. It is not an event in isolation of itself. At the same time, another meeting was held in Rochester, New York, several weeks later that covered a lot of the same things. And in that declaration of sentiments, and from this point on, women are going to be saying, we are citizens. Next episode, when we talk about the 14th Amendment, which was also at the center of the decision that took away women's rights to bodily autonomy and liberty, things will get even more pointed about citizenship because the 14th Amendment will state it outright. But today, I am going to talk about the 1850s with an eye towards this whole larger thesis of citizenship and with an eye towards the, what is happening to women right now. Okay. I'm sorry. This is, it's very difficult um, for me because it just, I'm, I'm aghast. I'm aghast because never in all of the history that I've studied, at least vis-a-vis -vis the United States and its guarantees and its governing documents, have I seen rights taken away. So what happens? Well, after 1848, Things just take off. There are meetings every year in the 1850s, except for one year. And in a couple of years, there were two and three meetings held at a time. Okay, so 1850, we have an Ohio Women's Convention in Salem. And then later in the same year in Worcester, Mass., we have the first National Women's Rights Convention. And boy, this really inaugurates this idea of needing to have a meeting every year and a meeting that was part of a national women's rights convention. So there's a whole movement starting and the 1850s will really see it. And what are the things they want to talk about? Well, here's the quote. The movement's objective quote was to secure for women political, legal, and social equality with man until her proper sphere is determined by what alone should determine it, her powers and capacities strengthened and refined by an education in accordance with her nature. And another resolution listed the claims for political rights, civil equality, and when I look at that, I see the Grimke sisters. I see the Declaration of Independence. I see Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And I see Seneca Falls. Because what they're arguing is, my uterus and you white men are not the reason why I have a sphere that is confined to the household. In other words, as a human being and as a citizen... They use the word citizenship more after 1868, and in the 1850s, what they're really talking about is 
being part of the governed. In other words, if the government has to rule in the interests of the governed, how can half of the population not be included in the governed? And so that's what these women are arguing about. They're saying, look, we are entitled to these things as part of the governed. Then in 1851, we have three conferences, one in Akron, Ohio, one in Indiana, and later one in Worcester, Mass. again, which was the second National Women's Rights Convention. So you have a national convention, and then you have these smaller conventions. The most famous was in May of 1851 in Akron, Ohio, because that is the convention at which Sojourner Truth made her famous speech, Ain't I a Woman? And I'm going to quote it. I cannot do justice to the words the way that Maya Angelou did when she recorded this. I cannot possibly do justice to others who have read this letter because it's so important. So she gets up in 1851 to make a speech. And Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who is one of the great feminists of this period, wanted to give Sojourner the, the floor, despite the fact that some racists in her midst did not. So Sojourner Truth walks up to the front. She puts her bonnet at her feet and she turned and she began her speech. And in her speech, she said this, look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me and ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most of them sold into slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me and ain't I a woman? And the crowd went crazy. And the applause was deafening. She made it clear that the definition of woman was one that men chose at certain times. They treated enslaved women and black women as, as less than. And so all of their BS about women and their inabilities to function and be strong and smart, you know, are just blown out the window. And that is that argument is also going to get blown out the window later. OK, so we have all of these conventions. And again, we have great speeches. We have focus on a woman's capacities to be part of the public to be part of the importance of being the governed. One of the things that they also wanted to focus on was married women's property rights. Specifically, there was agitation to get laws changed that allowed men to essentially have complete and utter control over a woman's earnings and any property she bought it brought into the marriage. And during some of these conventions as well, there would be advocacy for temperance. And the temperance was about the fact that men could take a woman's earnings, could take her property, spend it on drink, come home, rape his wife, beat her up, and there were no laws against that. So women were focused on some practical matters, but also on the idea that, hey, I'm part of the governed here. How are these laws in my interests? 
at one of the conventions in 1852 in Pennsylvania, there was a convention in Westchester. And one of the speakers, Lucretia Mott, who had been at Seneca Falls, talked about suffrage and the importance of getting the vote. But the convention ultimately passed this resolution, quote, that women are entitled by natural right to equal participation with men in the political institutions required for the protection of the whole people. In other words, we're part of the governed, so we are by definition a participant in politics. And that it is a gross inconsistency and glaring exercise of arbitrary power to compel women to pay taxes while they are not permitted a voice in deciding the amount of those taxes or the purposes for which they will be applied. Wow. Okay. So right there, remember anything from your American history class or any programs, what is one of the famous cries? No taxation without representation. Well, you know, <laughs> that's exactly what women endured. At a later session in that same convention in 1852, they passed a resolution that women should have equality before the law and the exercise of a woman's participations in politics would, quote, not involve the sacrifice of the refinement or sensibilities of true womanhood. They talked about the fact that women needed equal pay and equal job opportunities, that um, they needed to be full participants in society. And guess what? Just because that happens doesn't mean I'm going to stop being female. <laughs> uh, so, because that was one of their favorite, arg with the favorite arguments of men. Oh, it's so coarse and crass, this world of politics. And so the 1850s go on. And again, this is when we see the likes of Susan B. Anthony come to the fore and give speeches and ant uh, abolitionists uh, give speeches. In 1860, before the outbreak of the Civil War, there was a huge meeting in Cooper Union in New York, a school I taught at way back when. And it's amazing because the students are all there on scholarship and they're really amazingly smart. <laughs> And it was interesting to teach history to a bunch of college students who could have cared less about history and were focused on engineering. In any event, women were at the forefront of political activity in the 1850s, trying to improve their legal, political uh, situation and arguing the greater theories of rights of the governed. And later, those rights will include citizenship. Now, very important... As the Civil War begins to break out throughout the 1860s, women who were women's rights advocates and abolitionists spent the 1860s gathering 400,000 signatures to petition the U.S. to pass the 13th Amendment in 1866. It was called the First Woman's National Loyal League Convention, and it was held in 1863, and by the next year they had 400,000 signatures I find it interesting when I see historical movies, um, and I'm thinking specifically of the movie about Lincoln. Why don't they ever remember that women were part of the movement to abolish slavery, that women were part of the movement to pass the 13th Amendment? It blows me away that that's, as usual, left out. Okay, 
So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in the 1850s with a very clear understanding that we have a right to political participation. And more importantly, that as the governed, we are entitled to participate in a government and work towards a government that rules in our interests. Now, unfortunately, the uterus keeps getting in the way because as much as women believed that they had a right to be equal in the eyes of the law and in the, you know, they're always, oh, we're equal in the eyes of God, there was still tremendous resistance. When you look at newspaper coverage of these various women's conventions throughout the 1850s, most of the, t there were a few sympathetic ones, but most of the time they ridicule the women. They were ridiculing the women too, because during the 1850s is when um, Amelia Bloomer came up with a more pragmatic outfit for women that had pants underneath. In fact, there's a, a statue in Seneca Falls of Amelia Bloomer and is it Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony, some other uh, women's rights advocates who were wearing this outfit? And of course, the newspapers just hooked on that. And oh, isn't that funny? Another thing the newspapers like to talk about is there was a famous women's rights advocate named Lucy Stone. She, like um, Susan B. Anthony and Matilda Gage, really started becoming much more involved in the 1850s. And... um Lucy Stone was famous because when she got married, she and her husband rewrote the marriage contract whereat, wherein there was no obey, there was no subjection, they were equal partners, and Lucy Stone did not take the last name of her husband, which was unheard of at that time. And in fact, that came back into vogue in the 70s when I was coming of age, and my name is Victoria Delatore, Dr. Victoria Delatore. I worked really hard for that doctor, and I didn't want to be Dr. Somebody Else's name. That's who I am. And luckily, the person that I'm married to is totally fine with it, because he too came of age at a very different time in the 1970s, when it was all about rights expanding, rights getting better, rights being extended to more and more people. And again, all that changed. Now, I want to tell you about a little analogous situation that was occurring in the 1850s. And I've just sort of put these pieces together. So I want you to think about it. The American Medical Association was formed in 1849. And throughout the 1850s, in particular, led by a man named Horatio Storer, who was a, a doctor and who was a huge advocate of criminalizing abortion. And he made it clear that um, this is something that women should have no power over, that women should not be involved with. And the American Medical Association throughout the 1850s began pushing women, particularly midwives and enslaved women who were often the best midwives in a, in a small village, started pushing them away and saying, okay, wait, you're not allowed to be, you know, doing this. This is not something that women should be involved with. And 
So throughout the 1850s, we start to see the criminalization of abortion. And Dr. Storer in 1857 helped form a group called the Physician's Crusade Against Abortion. And he led a committee to investigate um, abortion, and he wanted very draconian laws passed. By draconian, I mean very, like the laws that are passed now. So you start to see throughout the 1850s this movement to criminalize a practice that had been around since the colonies. And this is where I'm going to get to the decision, the Dobbs decision, if people call it the abortion decision, and how it's wrong. And in fact, I urge you, go to Politico. There's a few-page article by this fantastic historian who wrote a book called When Abortion Was a Crime. And this historian, Leslie Reagan, made it clear that uh, Alito and the majority have their history all wrong. And here's where I'm going to start in on this decision. This decision is wrong in the law. And we'll talk about that even more next time. It's wrong in history and it's wrong in science. Now, as a historian, I'm incensed because historians, we work with evidence. So in other words, to make an argument, you need to have evidence. And what Professor Reagan does is make it clear that Alito's argument that there is no history and tradition of abortion in America is completely wrong. He ignores all the history that he doesn't like that doesn't fit his opinion. Because for centuries before the 1850s and when these laws started appearing on the books in a late 1850s, 1860s, abortion was perfectly legal in the United States. And in fact, the word was used all the time. I read a great article where someone went back and looked at all the newspapers from this period, and they used the word all the time, not just with respect to the specific procedure, but with respect to it as, oh, an abortive attempt. So the word was very familiar, and so was this word. It's called quickening. This is when the baby moves. This is this goes back to the Middle Ages, goes back to the common law in England. Until a woman's, until the child quickened, a woman could safely and legally have an abortion. In many cases, they were uh, performing abortions before quickening to bring on a menstrual cycle. And Dr. Reagan goes into that in her book in great detail. But essentially, what she's arguing is, is that quickening is an important milestone that and, and quickening usually happens what between four and five months when you start to feel little flutterings. And then as the baby gets bigger, then you feel more and more movement. Well, Alito says, no, no, that's not true. That the kick quickening didn't happen. You know, that wasn't a thing. He fails to understand that there was a right that was recognized or a procedure that was recognized because the child was not viable. And later on in the 18, late 1850s and the 1860s, what you see are doctors trying to push any women out, take over the medical, the obstetric practice, which they had never done before. Obstetrics had always been the purview of women. And so a lot of the great knowledge that midwives passed from one to the other is going to be lost. 
And with the maternal mortality rate of women of color that has really come to the fore recently, I don't trust the medical profession to always do the best by them because our numbers for maternal mortality for any women of color are so high, it's embarrassing. And there's a program on Hulu right now that just broke my heart where African-American men who lost their partners when the woman came in to give birth and talking about the anger, because a lot of this could be prevented. So this storehouse of knowledge that women have is just pushed aside and men take over. And of course, they're not going to explain how anything works to you. Uh, they're not going to teach you anything about your body or how it works. Moreover, Dr. Reagan brings up such a great point that I was unaware of. At the time that men are pushing, doctors are pushing women aside and trying to regulate abortion, there is an influx of immigrants, Irish, Italian especially. And so white men were fearful that white women were not having enough babies, that in, because they knew how to abort before quickening or because they used some sort of birth control or because they did not have relations with their husbands were limiting the size of their families. Well, the white men in charge were horrified. And so this was also part of a replacement theory endeavor. In other words, we need more white women to have white babies because we don't want to be overtaken by immigrants coming in. Because, of course, just as in every period of American history, whatever group is the new one, they're the reviled one. So nobody thinks much of Italian and Irish immigrants now. Oh, no, they were reviled in the 19th century. So what he's getting, he gets the whole history wrong of abortion in the United States, of how it was practiced, of how it was understood. I even read recently, and they keep putting this out, Benjamin Franklin wrote something where he gave instructions on how to abort because they didn't consider it a child. And this is where Alito's science is non-existent and he replaces it with religion. First of all, we count the weeks of pregnancy from your first missed period. So in other words, my last period was on January 1st. By February 15th, I'm pregnant. Well, you're not six weeks pregnant because you weren't pregnant for the first two weeks in January, but they still counted as six weeks and the quote, heartbeat. Well, it's not a heartbeat. The scientists have shown us that it's electrical activity and that at these very early stages in the first trimester, people can disagree. In other words, if you believe religiously that life begins at conception, that's your religion. But science and philosophy can't answer that. What science can show us is, oh, it's a zygote. It's a bunch of divided cells. Oh, it hasn't even implanted yet. Oh, it's an ectopic pregnancy. It's outside the uterus. By definition, you can't carry that to term. And despite the fact that there's electrical activity, that needs to have an abortion. Otherwise, the woman can develop sepsis and die, which has been the case in several renowned cases. So Samuel Alito is very much a hard stern Catholic in the sense that this is what he believes, but he's imposing it on all of us. 
And while he's entitled to his personal religious beliefs, he doesn't get to twist history, ignore evidence he doesn't like, and ignore scientific evidence and evidence that other people use as a way to feel that terminating a pregnancy at six or seven or eight weeks is fine. That is not the same thing as terminating a nine-month pregnancy when that is a child. So he's wrong on the law as well, which I said we're going to talk about next time. But what I find incredible is the laws that are now being passed by several, several of these states where you cannot have any kind of reproductive health care that in any way, shape or form puts the mother's life first. So we've already seen horror stories. A woman went to a doctor because there was still electrical activity or what Alita likes to call a heartbeat. They couldn't help her. She bred, bled intermittently for 10 days. We all know the story of the little 10-year-old girl who had to leave Ohio and go to Indiana. And of course, they all said it was a lie and it's never happened. Then the guy gets arrested. Then they try to make the doctor out to be some sort of ogre or some sort of baby killer when what she was doing was saving the life of a child. Because there's lots of articles that will tell you that 10 and 11-year-old bodies may have a uterus, but they are not capable of carrying and bearing a child without tremendous physical and psychological damage to themselves. So what I'm seeing when I look around is a denial of my humanity my citizenship, my rights as one of the governed, where my ability to become pregnant and bear a child is what defines my life. And you have defined my life that way. So again, I urge you, if you have a religious opinion, that is completely your purview. But what is difficult is listening to people who don't know better. So they interviewed this woman in Congress. She was appearing before a committee and they asked her the case about the 10 year old who got pregnant. And she said, well, look, if a 10 year old gets pregnant as a result of rape and she has medical treatment, that's not an abortion. That doesn't fall within our, our rules about abortions. And they looked at her and said, what? Of course it's an abortion. And as another expert there said, an abortion is a medical procedure. It's not like something that you can say, this is an abortion and this isn't. When fetal tissue or cells are removed, that's an abortion. It's like saying, I got my appendix out, but I didn't have an appendectomy. Makes absolutely no sense. So the people that are making these laws, which are a lot of old white men who most of them don't even know how a woman's body works and women who some of them don't seem to know that either. And it is reducing you, the citizen, to a, not just a secondary status, but you don't exist in the eyes of the law as a full human being first. There was lots more I wanted to talk about, but I think I've covered it. But just think of the confluence of events. 
the 1850s, we have convention and meeting and meeting after meeting. By the end of that period, the doctors have gotten together and said, hold the phone. We want you women, all you white women who are at these meetings, go home and have babies and we're going to take away your right to your bodily autonomy because we need more white babies and we sure as shit don't want you involved in politics. Well, just recently, there was a guy, I think, in Michigan who said women shouldn't have careers because that, of course, gets in the way of having children. What I'm seeing in the language of the Supreme Court, what I'm seeing in the language of legislators is language that reminds me of the 19th century. And, you know, when I've been reading opinions and reading research from the 19th century, you know, I'm always quick to say, OK, well, at least things are, you know, a little better. They're not the same as it was in the 19th century, but you know what? Now it is because what these men, what this patriarchy is saying to us is your uterus is what defines you. And because of your uterus, you are not entitled to full political participation, full recognition as a citizen, full recognition as one of the governed. And sorry about that. And again, all of this is a way to curtail women's power. And the other fact about this and the desire to subjugate women once again is the absolute hypocrisy about contraception. They just passed a bill in the U.S. House of Representatives protecting the right to contraception, but the Senate, it won't pass in there. You have to wonder if you don't want abortions or you're horrified by even an abortion at four or six or eight weeks then contraception is the answer. But that is not what they want. What they want is to punish women for having sex, for being equal citizens, and for defying what they consider to be your religious obligation and your dutiful obligation to have children. Because if anti-abortionists really wanted to prevent abortion, then birth control should be over the counter. You shouldn't have to ask for condoms behind the counter. You should be able to buy plan B freely, but that's not what they want. And so what you really have to do is look at what is the agenda here. And unfortunately, most of it is driven by religion, that these are people who have very staunch, narrow religious views and want to impose them on everybody else. And that was another Supreme Court decision that came down uh, recently that I'll talk about next time, because what I see happening is that my rights as one of the governed under the Bill of Rights to have a free exercise of religion, but also to have be free from any formal establishment of a religion in this country, that's being eroded away. So I'm doing all I can to act. I have my suffrage flag out. I am going to try to write maybe an article and and get it published somewhere because I want people to be aware of the history that what is happening now is part of a continuum. This is not anything new. This has happened before. It's just it's it's almost shocking and and blinding with how draconian it is right now in 2022. Okay. Thank you for listening. Please send me any comments via email or Facebook, and I wish you all the best. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. 
please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.